Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church in modern times and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Claire Swinarski. Claire is the founder and host of the Catholic Feminist Podcast. A 2013 graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, she has a bachelor's degree in mass communication and political science with a certificate in criminal justice. Claire served as a focused missionary from 2013 to 2015. In her new book, Girl Arise, A Catholic Feminist Invitation to Live Boldly, Love Your Faith, and Change the World, Swinarski reconciles the two identities by demonstrating the strengths and abilities women have to share with the body of Christ, the importance of women throughout the history of the faith, and how the love you experience through Christ and the church can change the world around you. Claire points out that while both feminism and Catholicism can mean different things to different people, both feminists and Catholics desire to make the world a better, fairer place. And she shows that by treating women with dignity equal to that of men, by calling them his friends and teaching them, Jesus acted as a feminist as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, Claire. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I just want to give a spoiler that if you haven't yet read Girl Arise, it will not answer the burning question that we women have to know if leggings are indeed considered pants. Is that correct? That is correct. I am wearing leggings now. I do wear them as pants often. However, I could not care less about your opinion on whether or not leggings are pants. So you can just (laughs) let that one fly right away. I just saw that you you mentioned that and brought back to it a few times. So I was like, okay, I think we we have a lead in here with what we're going to just spoil her book on that. So if that was what you were picking it up for, you're just not going to find it in there. And so on that, in your new book, Girl Arise, you champion how each woman is living out her unique call in her own way and your frustration with women's talks versus men's talks in which men were called to be warriors on a mission and women were likened to teacups and lectured about dress codes and submission. Tell me about how this fueled the podcast and the book. So I really had a deeper conversion to Christ and his heart and his church in college. And when I was in college, I started going on a lot of retreats and conferences. And then I became a missionary and I went to just tons and tons of Catholic events. And it's so popular in the Catholic world to have men's talks and women's talks, which like on its face, I'm totally fine with, right? And then I started to see this real pattern of women's talks letting me down. So often they had the same themes and they just seemed like things that were very, very surface level to me. And the more that my eyes were opened to different people around the world and their sufferings or even the sufferings of our next door neighbors, it just started to seem absolutely ridiculous to me that we would spend 45 minutes talking about, again, if leggings were pants or like how to talk to the boys on Facebook or like whether or not you and a boy should... DTR, you know, these things that just felt very, very surface level to me. And I'm not saying that there isn't room for those kind of conversations, but sometimes I think about it like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't know if anyone's ever taken a psych class, but if you picture like a triangle in your head, this is the idea that like on the foundation, we need things like a roof over our head and air to breathe. And then like, as we get those things and we can move, move up and up to like self-actualization would be the tip of that triangle. And sometimes I think about it like, you guys, it's fine to talk about 
you know, how to talk to boys on Facebook, but there are women around the world who are being sold and assaulted and enslaved. And to me, it's like, we have to figure that problem out first. Okay. It's kind of like the house is burning down and we're arguing over what color to paint the living room. There's a time and place for living room paint colors, and this is not it. So I just kind of felt on fire about these issues. And I knew that there were so many phenomenal Catholic women talking about these things, but I didn't feel as if they had a microphone all in one place or a significant enough platform And I was freelance writing and just kind of feeling creatively unfulfilled. And I really longed to talk to these Catholic women about these really important issues. And so that's where the podcast came from. And it's just an absolute joy. We have almost 100 episodes interviewing women on all kinds of things from eating disorders and body image to sexual assault to rape culture and the pay gap and all kinds of issues that I think are really important issues for women today. And these have obviously been very loudly spoken about in our culture, taken from media to Facebook to whatever social media and public forum. It's obviously been something that people are over and over again calling to the forefront of the conversation. So I think that you're probably getting a lot of response from people on that, especially in the church. And as you say, truly all women have their own temperament, personality, and struggle with God. You say of St. Therese and Joan of Arc that if the church truly believed the only qualified women were quiet, subtle Thereses, we wouldn't hold up boisterous, badass Joans as shining examples of womanhood as well. I just want to look at that a little bit closer because obviously, as you said in the book, people usually relate, as you said you did, to somewhere in between Therese and Joan of Arc. Didn't both Joan and Therese want to be unknown, hidden in Christ, weak, and insignificant? Many times we emphasize the warrior Joan and not so much the deeply devoted young woman of faith who was abandoned by the king she set out to crown and by those who upheld the faith she fought for. Yet she gave her life all the same, mocked, humiliated, and condemned. So yeah, exactly like what you just said, you know, most women identify between Therese and Joan, for sure. And I think that what both women held at the forefront of their mind was that longing to be known by God. And I think that what I was trying to say there is just that there's so many different ways to do that. I am an extremely boisterous person. I'm probably the one talking in the room. I'm definitely the one raising their hand. However, one of my very best friends, when I told her I was going to start a podcast, the first thing she said was, oh, please never ask me to be on that. (laughs) And I never have, and she never has been. But she's still an extremely holy woman, and it just looks a lot different than me. Her mission is a lot different than mine. And I think that God gives each of us these very different missions. And even when we are being more boisterous, you know, like I I have a podcast, I speak, I write books, I'm kind of out there in front of people. I still am not doing it with this desire to be seen as a badass. You know what I mean? I'm not doing it for like claps for Claire, trying to be the Catholic prom queen here. I'm doing it to try to serve God. And there are plenty of times where I wish that I had a pen name or something because I I do sometimes start to feel like people see me as like the spokesperson for the church. And I get these emails about how like I've changed their life. And I always want to tell people like, no, it's God. God is changing your life. God is working in your heart. So even when we are more boisterous, when we have a larger microphone, I very much identify with that desire of Joan to, to serve 
her Lord and in the way that he called her to do. And, you know, Therese, a lot of times we look at her as this weak little flower, but she could actually be kind of a sassy pants too. If you read Story of a Soul, her autobiography in there, you know, she's talking about how annoyed she would get with the other sisters at the convent. And it just feels so relatable to hear about these struggles that she was having. So even Joan and Therese, we can't just put in these neat little boxes and we try to so hard and we just shouldn't. People are so much more nuanced than that. And God's call to our lives is so much more nuanced than that. Right. And when I think of Joan, I mean, one of the things that I relate to most, honestly, if I'm if I'm really honest with myself, it's with Joan recanting at the end of her life. You know, for a few days, she recanted and said, no, I didn't actually hear these voices. And it was all made up because of fear when she's in the prison, alone, abandoned. And then, of course, a few days later, she says, no, I can't recant. It's true. And then she's burned at the stake for that, which she knew was coming. But I feel like that piece of Joan's story actually, to me, makes her the most relatable because there's so many times where maybe you are that boisterous warrior, you're out there on the front lines, but something, some kind of fear can completely drop you to almost a doubt and such a level of weakness that you're willing to just hide behind a lie, maybe to save yourself from whatever, you know, death in her case, but more exemplary in our times is probably more like mockery or being outcast or something like that. Absolutely. And we're not in prison. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like no one's trying to crucify us upside down. People just might send us a mean tweet here or there. I always have to just refer back to the Bible where Jesus said it was going to be hard. And he said that people were going to hate us. Like he told us these things and we still feel bad when people say things that hurt our feelings, or we still feel awkward when we're the odd person out in a group saying something that a lot of people around us don't agree with. And just staying rooted in scripture has been so helpful for me with that, you know, whether it's Jesus telling us how hard it's going to be, or Paul saying that like, when he doesn't know what to say, he knows that the Holy Spirit will just fill his mouth with words. Those are the moments that I have to keep that front of mind. Because If Joan can end up telling the truth in prison, I think I can probably end up telling the truth from my Brookfield, Wisconsin living room. Mm -hmm. And she was illiterate as well. So he really did pull her up. She was in her teens when he first had her get the ball moving. So it was really calling this young girl who was illiterate and more of a peasant type girl and bringing her to do these unbelievable things. So with that, I mean, the early champions of women's rights, such as Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were fighting for the noble cause for equal rights for women in education, marriage, the right to vote. Yet, as the term feminism was established, so was the distinction between a woman and motherhood. As Ann Carr and Elizabeth Schuler Fiorezza wrote in 89, it is the institution of motherhood that keeps this potential and women and children under patriarchal control and disempowers women. And then Simone de Beauvoir said in her interview with Betty Friedan in 76 regarding women choosing to stay at home over daycare, no woman should be authorized to stay at home to raise her children. Women should not have that choice precisely because if there is such a choice, too many women will make that one. This disdain for motherhood as a choice and vocation has largely been synonymous with feminism from its first wave and the divide seems to continue to grow. Why do you think feminism has been hostile to motherhood? 
Oh, Simone, (laughs) that (laughs) woman had some thoughts that I don't agree with. I think that historically, there have been many times where women making the choice to be mothers has disenfranchised them. I mean, if you look historically when women weren't allowed to own property and then suddenly they have kids and a husband leaves them and they're totally stuck or like women were pressured to leave certain career fields because they should stay at home with their kids. I think that this antagonistic attitude that the secular feminist movement can have towards mothers stems as a backlash from that. And I think it's important to acknowledge that because it'd be easy to say like, oh, they're so crazy. They just hate moms. But I think that most of these women are trying to do what they think is right. And they're seeing disenfranchised women and they're trying to find a solution. But here's the problem. That's not the right solution. That's a symptom of the problem and not the actual problem. You know, when we interviewed Abby Johnson on our podcast, she talked about how in Planned Parenthood, women would come in and say, I need to get an abortion because this is going to interfere with work or school. And I have two kids. Okay. So kids do interfere with everything. Okay. They interfere with lunch. They interfere with every part of your life. But Planned Parenthood would say to them, like, you're right. You can't do it. Um, You should probably order this kid. You can't be a mother and do those things. And what Catholic feminism is trying to say is that actually you can be a mother and work. You can be a mother and go to school. We don't need to pick either or. You know, hearing Simone say like women shouldn't be given that choice that doesn't just disempower moms, that disempowers all women. It's saying that like women don't have the fortitude or intelligence to make decisions about their own lives, which is so ironic because I'm sure that she would have identified as a pro-choice person. But when you're taking away that, that capability that women have to make the best decisions for their lives, that's just an incredibly anti-feminist thing to do. I think that this strong anti-motherhood response is trying to be a solution to a problem and it's just the wrong solution. Because newsflash, if women just decide not to have kids, A, we're not going to repopulate the earth, which that's a whole other topic. Um, And B, women aren't going to be able to live out their calling. You know, God desires many of us to be mothers. God desires me to be a mother and he desires me to be a writer. And I'm so fortunate that I can do both. And he desires some women to only be mothers and he desires some women to only be orthodontists. And we just need to be in frequent conversation with God to be able to allow him to tell us what he wants us to do. But I think that the best way to actually solve that problem is to make it easier for mothers to be able to do what they're called to do. So whether that looks like more affordable daycare programs, whether that looks like paid maternity leave, but actually fighting the problem and not just slapping a very strange Band-Aid on it. Yes, yeah, Simone was pro-choice. She actually allowed abortions to take place in her apartment because obviously it was illegal at the time. So she was a great advocate for that. And it is funny because she's okay with women having certain choices. But as you see, daycare or motherhood, there should not be a choice because women are not able to make that choice because she's afraid that too many people will choose the thing that she doesn't think they should choose, which is staying home with their children. She's afraid that you know that will continue to turn the dial backwards or to keep it where it is. And she wanted to kind of push women out into the workforce so that they would feel like, okay, I can do this or you know, this is good and this is better than staying home with the children. And that's a whole nother discernment whether they can work and raise their children at home. There are circumstances where they need daycare or other support 
But I think that most people, when they hear the modern feminists and when they look at many of the primary philosophers and ideologists of feminism, they do see this divide between the ability to be a mother and to be a feminist or the ability to choose to raise your own children and forego maybe your education or your career or things like that and still call yourself a feminist. I feel like there is a lot of animosity in the primary philosophy and ideology of feminism, dividing that. Sure. And I mean, this is where terminology just becomes so, so important, right? So if you think that the idea of feminism is that women should rise up and take over society and make it matriarchal, yeah, it's going to be hard to do that if you're allowing women to choose to stay home with their kids. If you view feminism as we view it, which is viewing men and women with equal dignity and worth, then you see that there's no difference at all. And that in fact, we should all be feminists. But that's why terminology is so important. You know, what's great about being Catholic is that when there's a question about a church teaching, we have a catechism and we have authoritative people. We don't have that in feminism. We have people who act like they have authority, but mm-hmm. all feminists did not go to a convention and vote on a leader. You know, we didn't get make a handbook. We can't even agree on our march. Look at all the issues mm-hmm. around the women's march. We can't even get on the same page about that. And so it's easy to say, well, this is what feminism means, but the definition is actually much more fluid for different kinds of people. You know, very, very modern day feminism, like 2019 feminism, is focused a lot on gender issues and actually in many cases eliminating gender. Yes. yes. So then uh-huh. it's like, okay, well, what does feminism mean? So, yeah, so that's women, my question. What, yeah. is, what is feminism? Because again, it's said over and over again. And I know Janet Smith said as many brands of feminism, there are of feminists. With each feminist, you're going to find a different brand of feminism. So is there anything that's cohesive about feminism? Is there anything that is agreed upon or any common thread as a reality and not just an ideology? Is it power, meekness, service, leadership, humility, equality, dominance? certain rights, other rights, or is it a relative term determined by each woman and how she chooses to interpret it like many religious sects interpret the Bible? I mean, obviously, I think that our definition of feminism is quote unquote, the right one, because I think it's the closest to truth. I think it's how God designed things and how how Jesus lived out and he should be our role model of all things, right? I think that if I were to sit down with an extremely secular feminist person, like, I don't know, the head of the Women's March, you know, if me and Linda got in a room together and sat down, I think we'd agree on so much. And that's what I think people don't understand. I don't think that there's a Catholic out there who thinks that women getting attacked is a good idea or that women shouldn't be paid as much as men if they are doing equal work. You know, so many of these things we can all get behind. But that being said, I do think it's important to make that distinction. I used to think it wasn't as important, but as times continue to go on and more and more people are taking claim of that name feminism, I'm really feeling this desire to make sure that I am separated from the pack because I wish that I could say, here's our mission statement we all wrote together. Here's our common threads. But the thing is, we do have really important differences. And so it's kind of like when I was a kid and I learned what a Lutheran was, my neighbor was Lutheran. 
Lutheran and I went to church with her sometimes. And I remember being like, what's the difference between Lutheran and Catholic? We seem like the exact same flipping thing. And everyone in Wisconsin is Lutheran or Catholic. I've met like one Jewish person in my life. Like all the Germans are here. We're all Lutherans and Catholics. And I remember thinking like, this is not that big of a deal. We're so similar. We're all Christian, you know, peace sign coexist. And then as I learned more and more about the faith, I learned how important it was that I was Catholic because we have things about us that are just the truth. It's not that we're fancier. It's not that we make better communion wafers. It's that it's the truth of what is. And so to me, that's why that feminism distinction is so important. And I want to sit at the table with secular feminists. I want to join hands and figure out, look, no one likes sex trafficking, okay? Except the sex traffickers, we are all behind that. Okay. Any faithful Catholic is like, get the sex traffickers out of here. And even that is starting to be questioned in secular feminism between like, whoa, how do you know if someone's trafficked versus it's voluntary sex work and all of these different conversations. And also with that is the argument of pornography, because a lot of feminists say that you can't control pornography or, you know, that's a personal choice that people either can enter into or produce or things like that. But the reality is that a lot of these people that do get into these porn industry films are not originally voluntary. Exactly. Or if you look at the statistics between pornography and violence against women, I mean, these these are pretty black and white things. It is hard to argue against that correlation. People find a way to do it. But I feel like As important as it is that we sit at the table, it's also important that we stay rooted in the truth of what is. You know, like Catholics, we're not a relativistic faith. Like we believe that there is one truth, no matter who you are, no matter where you live in the world. And so we need to keep showing up. But I also think we need to remember that we're not 100% on the same page. And so it used to really frustrate me if people didn't want to call themselves a feminist. And now I've kind of come to the point where I'm like, I really don't care if you call yourself a feminist or not. I care that you're with me on protecting the women of the world and upholding their dignity. And the terminology just isn't as important to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you said feminism as a secular terminology is fluid. So what is a Catholic feminist? Is it mostly separated from secular feminism as far as life issues go? Because obviously most secular feminists would say that they are pro-choice. That seems to be one of the principles, at least now in modern day feminism, that many feminists hold and they hold very vocally. So is that what is primary? I mean, you gave an example in the book of St. Gianna and how she gave her life for her unborn child. So is it that pro-life issue that Catholic feminists use to distinguish primarily themselves from secular feminists? Sure. But I'd also say that life issues don't exist in a vacuum. Like our life issues have a foundation. We're not just pro-life because we want to fight with people, right? We're pro-life because we have an understanding of who God is and Catholic social teaching and the dignity of the human person. And I think that that's important to keep in mind because yes, that is our big divider, pro-life issues. I mean, obviously we have other ones as well, but I'd say that is the number one big divider. At the same time, that foundational Catholic part of Catholic feminism, like in a dream world, everyone who calls themselves a Catholic feminist would be regularly engaging with the sacraments and regularly praying and really letting their Catholic faith fill that fire for pro-life issues. That is like one of the main dividers, but I just think that doesn't exist in a vacuum. And you have to remember like why we differ on that. It's not just because we're trying to be argumentative. It's because we care about women and children 
we think that these issues are feminist because they're holding women in their true dignity. And we believe that abortion is trying to take women's dignity away from them, which you can't do, right? Because dignity is intrinsic and invaluable. But I think that that pro-life issue definitely is the number one. And that's been really hard. You know, you see women getting uninvited from the Women's March. And then this year, the Women's March put out their like 10 pillars or whatever. They put out like the actual rules of what they're marching for. Did they really? Yeah, which they hadn't done in the past. The first one was all women, whatever, until the pro-life issue. But even then, the pro-life women I've talked to who have been there did not get in these throwdown, smackdown fights. People were like glad that all kinds of women were there. And then this year, they put out like what they're marching for. And one of them was reproductive rights. What a pretty little bow to put on a package that is so horrifying. Yeah. And even Cardinal Ratzinger, who obviously became Pope Benedict XVI, said that there was a tragedy of contemporary feminism, and he considered it one of the greatest threats menacing the church and stemming from a lack of faith and a loss of the sense of the supernatural, and that feminism is inconceivable in a world rooted in Judeo-Christian values. I guess you would probably disagree because you are bringing to light this Catholicism and feminism that does embody some of these principles that John Paul II spoke about when he talked about a new feminism. Exactly. I mean, Pope Francis has said similar things to Pope Benedict. And I would say, I don't think that anyone has ever sat them down and explained what Catholic feminism was. I'd love to do so. Pope Francis, call me. But I think that what they are identifying as feminism, I probably agree with them. (laughs) That's a huge barrier of society right now and that it's fighting against that. But when you sit down and hear about Catholic feminism, about the dignity of women, about the feminine genius and holding women up to be what they truly are, embracing that spirit of relational service and valuing women... I think that they would start to see really quickly that that's obviously something our church supports. There's obviously sexist people within the church, but church teaching is not sexist, right? There's people in the church who lie, but church teaching isn't lying. If you look at the church teaching on women, you see that it does uphold the dignity of women. So, I mean, I think Pope Francis and Pope Benedict are feminists, and they just don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And you also claim Mary as the ultimate feminist, because as you say, she's living out her true feminine nature by making enormous life-altering sacrifices for her family. So my question is, does Mary ever truly lead on these decisions? For instance, becoming the mother of God as handmaid of the Lord, riding a donkey to Bethlehem, birthing in a stable, going to Egypt and back again, or does she rather willingly and voluntarily submit herself to God's invitation and Joseph's decisions for the family, which were angelically revealed to him? But I view that as leading. I view that as leading other people by saying yes to God. I think you're being a leader by being that example. You know, like we believe that Jesus would not have been in Mary's womb if she had not given that fiat, right? She said yes and accepted it. And a document that I point people to all the time is John Paul II's letter on the dignity of women. And it talks in there about the meaning of that word service and how, you know, Mary served the Lord and how powerful service really is. You know, Jesus himself said that he came to serve, not to be served. 
and that serving other people is being Christ-like. And then that is being a leader. We can lead through that service. And so, yes, Mary maybe didn't say, I have a great idea. I'm going to have a baby in a barn. But she accepted that circumstance and then kicked butt at it and was an amazing mother to Jesus. And I mean, think of just the strength that Mary had to have in her life is so empowering to me. I know that everyone connects with Mary in different ways and through different stories, but One thing that always has stuck out to me about Mary is that she was warned that it was going to really pierce her heart, right? What was going to happen to Jesus? And she was so strong and still showed up as his mother every day all the way to the end. I mean, that's just immeasurable strength. And to me, that is leadership. We have a really different view in the Catholic Church of the word leader than the secular world does. Women CEOs are great. Women being in charge of companies are great. However, that is so far from the only way to be a leader. So it's also inner strength is what you would say made Mary the ultimate feminist was her inner strength and her ability to accept. Absolutely. Absolutely. That strength that made her even get out of bed every morning, but also that just kept her son, Jesus, less at the forefront of every decision. It would have been so easy for Mary to say no and to run away from that life at any time or run away from the cross. But inner strength is so important to, to who women are. Right. And I know you examine a few of Paul's verses in the book, which many of us are familiar with Ephesians 5, 21 through 25, which instructs wives to submit themselves to their husbands, for he is head of his wife as Christ is head of the church. So how do you interpret the role of submission as a Catholic wife yourself? I'll let you know when I figure that out. <laughs> you know, it's that is a really interesting battle that I go through in my heart and in my head all the time. But what I will say is this, in my marriage specifically, and I, I am not here to give out marriage counseling advice to anyone, but I will say that I have a very level-headed husband and I can be very passionate about things. And sometimes passion is really good and someone needs to light a fire in our family. And oftentimes someone needs to put a little water on our family's fire because it's getting out of control. And so I think that for me, that idea often looks like taking a step back and just having that humility to say, okay, you know, what are my gifts that I bring to my family? One of them is service and being able to say, we both are smart people with really great ideas, but that doesn't mean that mine is necessarily right. And so sometimes it just looks like stepping back and saying, okay, we're going to do it this way. And I've also found that our God is a God of truth. So if I was right and Chris was wrong, he will figure it out eventually. I just have to kind of let time keep going. But that's a really... You know, I had some beef with Paul and I write about that in the book. Growing up, Paul was always really hard for me to understand. But the more that I've learned about the culture he was living in and the more time that I've spent in prayer with it, I've kind of decided that at least for myself, it does sometimes look like living in a tension. I'm not always 100% sure what to do, but that's the beauty of our faith, right? We can always just keep learning and growing in it and trying to figure it out as we go along. (laughs) I I mean, I... Paul, I think he is someone that a lot of people that maybe would consider themselves feminists or have felt strongly that they deserved a certain role equal to men in dignity would take some contention with certain things that he's written. And many women have spoken about that wrestling as you did in the book as well. I think the beautiful thing about the word submission even in itself is literally means under the mission. And so, I mean, first of all, note to women, choose a good man, but, um, you know, to be under the same mission to hopefully it's serving 
the Lord. You know, hopefully that's your mission that you're under. You're both under this mission to serve the Lord. And then also just the way that it's written in Greek is to submit yourself. It's a voluntary response, voluntary response to headship. So according to St. Paul, that headship is laying down your life. A husband is supposed to lay down his life. So you are voluntarily submitting yourself to that as a response. And so I just think, I don't know, it's really beautiful when you really get into it, like you were saying, to spend time with scripture, to spend time with the word, to understand what it truly means and to understand it in context. And I think Mary truly shows that submission so many times to be under the mission of God, to be under the mission of Joseph. He said, okay, get up, you know, we're going to Egypt, you know, okay, it's time to go back again. And she was submissive to that. I imagine myself being like, hold on, what? How do you know? Egypt? What? We don't live in Egypt. Why are we going there? And Mary definitely does not come across that way as that type of woman. Right. I think the other thing that always connects me to Mary as this original feminist or way that I identify with her was just the extreme discomfort that she must have felt, whether it's the physical discomfort of giving birth in a barn or you know, just the discomfort of living in the time she lived in and being pregnant out of wedlock and then like having this son who walked around claiming to be God, that had to be very, very uncomfortable. And I found a lot of times in my own life when I'm called to do something for God, like talking in front of a bigger people or be it small, I have to spend 10 extra dollars on a Christmas gift because I want to make sure I'm shopping ethically and not buying something made by a slave. It feels uncomfortable. And Mary, I just feel always leaned into that discomfort and knew that she was doing it for her family and for God and for the world at large. And so that's kind of a piece of her that I always try to keep with me too. You talk about how much you love Mother Teresa and how she kind of follows you around and just constantly influences your path. So she said in a message to the World Conference on Women in Beijing, but why did God make some of us men and others women? Because a woman's love is one image of the love of God and a man's love is another image of God's love. Both are created to love, but each in a different way. How would you say that men and women love differently? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think that obviously it's hard to talk about this without talking in generalizations. And I know that people are really sensitive to stereotypes and I get it because I am in so many ways, not this like very stereotypical girly girl and stereotypes can really, really hurt people. But it's hard to have any kind of conversation if you're not talking about generalization. So someone's going to listen to this and get kind of mad and I'm sorry in advance. But I think that one way that women love that I think is very beautiful is that women tend to be a bit more relational. And what I mean by that is that they just tend to be a little more aware in my experience of how their actions affect the things around them, that they are kind of like a pebble falling in a pond and then there's all these ripples around them in a way that I haven't seen men do necessarily. And I think that that side of Jesus that was just extremely loving to people on the margins and always being aware of who was around him, you know, seeing like little Zacchaeus who'd climbed up in a tree, those kind of things. Those are very feminine traits. I'm obviously not saying that Jesus was a woman, right? But we all have masculine and feminine traits inside us. And I think that that tends to be more feminine, whereas sometimes for men, I think that there can be this sense of duty in the sense that they have to do things even if they're going to hurt the people around them, because sometimes that's just what you have to do. And that's going to maybe hurt people's feelings. And I think we constantly have to live in that balance. But I think that 
Jesus did that so perfectly, right? He yelled at Peter, get behind me, Satan, because he really needed to make a point. That probably made Peter feel a little sad, but he knew what he had to do. I think that that tension is kind of the first thing that pops into my mind when I hear that. I had never heard that Mother Teresa quote before. I love that. Yeah, you have to read uh, the message of Mother Teresa for the World Conference on Women in Beijing. I mean, she says the, the special power of loving that belongs to a woman is seen most clearly when she becomes a mother. Motherhood is the gift of God to women. And she says, yet we can destroy this gift of motherhood, especially by the evil of abortion, but also by thinking that other things like jobs or positions are more important than loving and giving oneself to others. No job, no plans, no possessions, no idea of freedom can take the place of love. So mm-hmm. anything that destroys God's gift of motherhood destroys his most precious gift to women, the ability to love as a woman. And that's, again, a hot button issue here because There are so many women who choose to work over staying home with their children. You know, it's a personal choice. We're not talking about certain needs, like where they need to work for family income, or there's a certain extenuating factor, or they're single mothers, so obviously they need to work. But there are more than any other time in history right now, women who choose to work over staying home. And a lot of times they are just paying for the daycare bills. So it's obviously a personal choice. And it's something that I think comes to the table a lot on discussion. People feel judged for that decision. And it's something that goes back and forth quite a bit with feminism in and out of the church. Definitely. I have a few thoughts on that. The first would be like, foundationally, you have to like read people in good faith. I think that a lot of times we want to hear quotes and then we want to say, look at this horrible thing this person said. It's like, okay, what was Mother Teresa trying to say here? I, I believe that what she's trying to say is that our families need to be more important than our careers. A hundred percent. I back that up. When it comes to deciding whether or not to work, like I've chosen to work. Like my husband's a software engineer. I could eat bonbons all day. Not like we're sitting here loaded, but whatever. You know what I mean? (laughs) I, I chose to work and so many women do. Love is not measured in the amount of minutes that we spend with people. Okay. It's just not. I grew up with a mom who worked a lot. She was an elementary school teacher and I went to daycare my whole life. And I am like freakishly close with my mom. Like people commented on on it. Like we talked to each other three times a day on the phone. And I say that because I think that we wish that there was some kind of formula to be the perfect mother, like do X, Y, Z, and your kids are going to grow up and go to Yale and everyone's going to be happy when it's just not how it is. We're all doing the best we can. I think that if God didn't want some women to go be doctors or janitors or secretaries or whatever, then he wouldn't have given us those skill sets and those desires. I mean, it's fine if you want to say that the best thing for every kid would be for their mom to stay home. Okay, you can make that argument, but I would counter that with, look, the best thing for every family is for every single person to live out what they feel God is calling them to do. And I would never want to tell a woman who feels her call is to go work that she needs to stifle that because she thinks there's some standard out there in terms of staying home with your kids. I just, I think that, women who choose to work because they've prayed and discerned it 
are doing a good thing. Now, are there women who choose to work because they like can't stand being moms and they put all their value in their careers and they think their career is the most important thing ever? Of course. You know, I have a journalism degree and I have a network. I could probably go get a job at a newspaper somewhere and newspaper schedules are super hard and unreliable and it would be really hard on my family. Or like I speak sometimes. I could fly to Toronto on a random Tuesday or whatever. But like I've discerned that that would be too hard for my family. Other women might make different choices. And I don't know the circumstances of that woman's life and why she decided to do what she did. And so I think we probably all just need to discern what God's asking us to do and then turn our judgment down to zero. There's a lot of loaded questions and a lot of hot topics out there. And I'm sure that just in calling yourself a feminist, you probably have heard the whole gamut of them. So I guess I'll just end with saying women must live up to their calling by God, a true mission to restore the proper hierarchy of values and the extraordinary value of femininity in a love that is totally self-giving and voluntarily receptive. How can women live up to that? What can they do to live up to their calling by God? The first thing I would say to do is to pray. And I think it's really easy to be like, oh, what a cop out answer. But if we are not tuned in to the Lord and what he wants for us, and we're trying to make our own decisions without him, we are going to wither and die. Okay. So praying every single day for what God is asking you to do, I think is the most important thing. And then the second thing I would say is to just stay connected to a couple things that Jesus said. The first one being be brave. <laughs> like, don't don't be afraid of this world because they're probably going to hate on you for one thing or another, whatever you're calling us. If you choose to stay at home with your kids, a lot of people are going to hate on you for that. If you choose to go to work, a lot of people are going to hate on you for that. If you choose to discern the single life and stay single, a lot of people go to religious life, like no matter what you do, someone's going to be mad. So we have to be brave about that. And we also have to remember that Jesus said it was going to be hard, but he also said that he was going to be with us to the end of the age. So it is going to be hard. But I think that when you pray, you pull from that wellspring, that eternal grace and fill your heart with the knowledge that he is with you no matter what. And I think that that lets us all live up to that calling. And then lastly, we need to have a globalistic worldview. We need to think about women whose lives don't look like ours. It's really easy for me to sit here in small town Wisconsin and think that like the biggest issue facing people is a little bit of litter on the street. That is not the biggest issue facing people. We need to think about women who look nothing like us, who don't believe the things we believe and who live on the other side of the world or right next door. We just need to have a worldview that encompasses all women. That would be my rambling answer to that question. (laughs) Thank you so much, Claire. Where can people find you? Everything is at thecatholicfeministpodcast.com. All our social media links, where to buy Girl Arise, where to get a hold of me, it's all right there on the website. That's thecatholicfeministpodcast.com. Okay. I want to thank Claire so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Sounds good. 